Ephesians 5:22 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to, as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are, submit, are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present to the church he did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of this body, of his body, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect their husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. (laughs) All right. See if we've got this all situated. I think we do. Um, We are continuing our journey through Ephesians this morning. We've reached the famous marriage passage of Ephesians, and it is also Thanksgiving week. I didn't necessarily put those together when I planned this out or thought through it. Uh, I didn't plan it this way, but I do appreciate the connection that's made. For many of us, um, marriage is something to be thankful for. Even for those people who, who are either not married or maybe have struggled in marriage, like, you can appreciate the prospect of marriage as a blessing. It, I think, I think that's, uh, something we can think about and be thankful for. But, um, to give everything away up front, actually, this passage is only talking about marriage secondarily. Marriage in the, a human sense, secondarily. The real point is, uh, for Paul is that marriage is a dim reflection of a much greater mystery. Something bigger than marriage is in, in uh, than human marriage is in picture here. Much greater truth is that the unity among spouses in a marriage is a dim reflection of the unity that Jesus is cultivating with his people, the church. Whether you're married or not, the amazing reality of uniting with Christ affects all that we do as followers of Jesus. And so, so I hope that that's interesting and exciting to you. That, that, that God wants to be close to you and to me and to us. So, uh, I'm going to turn to the kids. Uh, so kids today, uh, who is the most important person in your life? God. Good answer. Not what I was going for, but good answer. That is a great answer, actually. All right. Beyond God, who is the most important person in your life? Uh, I heard a daddy. Dad, okay. Jesus, also a very good answer. Nobody said mom yet? What is going on? Like, I don't know whether you're going to get food for lunch. Like, that's, that's pretty shocking. So, it, usually we say someone like mom and dad. Maybe you have a sister or a brother that's really close to you. Or maybe that definitely is not the case. I don't know. Uh, but, but even choosing between is mom or dad the most important person in your life? It's still hard, right? They're both important. 
What makes them important to us? What makes your mom or dad important to you? No thoughts? Not sure? Maybe it's how close they are to you, right? That the depth of your relationship is is really important. I'm going to try and move this out of the way. I noticed. Uh, the depth of the relationship is is really important. They're close. Uh, the closest relationship a child can have is usually to their father and or mother. So, here's a new question for kids. It's always fun to question to ask kids. Who are you going to marry? What did you say? What do you say? Do you say mom? Yeah. Okay. It's sometimes funny when we think about who we're going to marry when we're young, right? Like we, we may probably have no clue. But we do choose something. Like we choose the closest person to us. You know, I actually met Kimbra when I was five at a kindergarten friend's birthday party. Um, and she was three. Uh, we've known each other a long time. But... I don't think I knew that, that we would get married or anything like that, but I have known that her for a long time. So sometimes maybe you've met the person you're going to marry. Sometimes maybe not. God has, um, has a plan for marriage that he shares in Genesis. Way back in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 24, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it sounds really funny, one flesh. Like, what does that mean? But it's really important. Marriage is about covenanting. That's a big word. And what it means is uh, a fancy word for committing in a super serious way. Okay, kids? Like, covenanting is, is committing in a super serious way to a deeper relationship uh, with another human being. So that's what marriage is. It's this covenanting with uh, another human being um, and, and being closer than you've ever been before. Knowing more about them than you've ever known about anybody else and then knowing more about you than anyone else has ever known. In fact, it should be the closest relationship. This is what marriage should be. The closest relationship you ever have on the earth with another human being. It's like the greatest and deepest friendship ever. That's what it should be. But marriage is not easy. And let me explain to you why. Kids, your parents know all about you, right? They know what you like and what you don't like. They know how picky you can be. They know what you are like on a bad day or how you act when you're sick. They changed your diaper and helped you get dressed and they were part of teaching you how to tie your shoes. Maybe they taught you. I don't know. They've watched you grow up until today. They've spent the most time with you so far and they know you the best. And one day, you'll get married. Maybe. And you will have an even closer relationship with your spouse than with your parents. This is actually why so many people struggle in marriage, is the closeness part. Your spouse, the person you marry, will know all the good things about you, but they also are going to know all the struggles. They will see sin and selfishness very clearly in your life, and you will see theirs, and that's not easy to deal with. You can't really hide anything from somebody else in marriage and you shouldn't. Listen, today, today, as we talk about these verses and about the most important relationships in our lives, marriage to your spouse and actually marriage to Jesus. So we're going to talk about that. Okay, kids? So listen along as, as we um, kind of jump into this. We are 
uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 through 3 of Ephesians was all about the great things that God has done in bringing salvation and making a people for himself out of his enemies and, and all of these things. And then chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 10, I told you that Paul specifically talked about how God's purpose in everything is to unite all things in him, all things in Jesus. At the midpoint of the letter, Paul transitioned from the theological truths uh, and practi- to the practical application. So because those things in chapter 1 through 3 are true, now chapter 4 through f- 6 come along. Chapter 4 was all about uh, how amazing salvation, um, how, how our amazing salvation creates this unity among God's people as we are saved together and grows us and matures us as a community into the image of Christ. Chapter 5 moves from the church to the community, namely how we walk in a day-to-day basis and interact in relationships in, gener- in general. Last week, um, Tim Fenton came and shared with us from Believer's Church, our parent church, or one of our parent churches in Hannibal. And he talked about how Jesus' salvation gives us the ability to live life God's way. We can walk in the light of faithfulness to God and leave the ways of rebellion that, that the world lives in without Him. We, we can be different because of what Jesus has done. And we can be different, really, only because of what Jesus has done for us. Today, beginning in this uh, verse 22, Paul begins talking about the mo- more intimate relationships, those of our home. In fact, we're going to talk about other home relationships next week. The home matters. Your family matters. How we live together should be completely affected by the change that God has enacted in our lives through Jesus. This is, this, this is why we're different. Because of what Jesus did. In fact, the, Bible, uh, the people that you live with will also be the first people to see change in your life. You'll also be the first people to see if change really didn't happen in your life. If other things are going on. If things are true or not, you're... Your family will see that. Your marriage should be the most intimate relationship you ever have with another human being. This intimacy and the willingness to pursue this intimacy is why marriage is to last a lifetime. It's an important thing. But we have to acknowledge some things, as Paul does, where marriage begins. We have to acknowledge kind of where it came from. um, And he does this in verse 31 specifically of our passage. But he references back to Genesis 2. So let me share with you uh, three truths about marriage that kind of come from our passage, um, especially verse 31, and then uh, kind of harken back to Genesis chapter 2. The first truth is this. Let me give you three truths just to get us going. Three truths of marriage. First one is this. Marriage was God's idea. Marriage was God's idea. The idea of marriage was given by God all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 as he was creating things. And it was done before the fall into sin. Before sin entered the world, marriage was created. God develops the first couple and the first marriage, I would say. If we accept that God created marriage, then it is the best plan to follow what He says about marriage. To follow His plan. And it seems like that would be obvious, but it's sometimes a struggle. For people to say, no, I don't want to do it my way, I want to do it God's way. Like That's a hard statement sometimes. Oftentimes it's more about, no, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is all about me. No, what does God say about it is a different way. 
But if marriage is God's idea, we should look to Him. So I'm going to jump quickly to the second truth. Marriage is about, what's it about? What's the point of it? It's about companionship. God seems to have had a purpose to marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God defines the problem that Adam had when he declares that it's not good for man to be alone. God then proceeds to make all manner of animals and birds, but Adam, um, which Adam named, that was part of it, but nothing was a true companion for Adam. Nothing was, was right. Nothing was compatible with him on every level. And then in verse 21, God forms Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. Adam responds, this, is, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in the last several weeks, I've been thinking about that. Um, what, what was, I've been thinking about what was gained by God's plan here. I've always thought these words were weird, kind of silly and obvious. Like, yes, she's bone of your bone because she's out of your bone, the rib that's there. Like, it just seemed so obvious and silly. But we could say, yeah, Adam, she's from your bones. But I don't, I don't think that's the whole point. Adam is saying, this is, this is me. We are made for each other. We go together. There's nothing that's not uh, connected between us. And I think maybe that's part of what God was doing in going about the, the creation of um, Eve, of women, this way. Eve was truly made for Adam. But we have to be careful after that. We do, especially in our culture. The Bible doesn't promise you the perfect spouse in the way our culture talks about it. Your one true love, that doesn't really, that's not really, a, there's no Bible verse to back that up. Notice that Adam and Eve's marriage started before she was made for him. But that started before sin entered the world. But after that, what Adam needed and what you and I need and need to be looking for is someone who can join us in this life. Someone who doesn't reject us even when things go wrong. Even when we sin. And someone who willingly enters into the mess of our physical and emotional and spiritual lives for our physical and emotional and spiritual and financial and everything else good. Who joins into the mess that is you. The mess that is me. The best marriage is found in a commitment of two sinful followers of Jesus to one another, regardless of what comes, for the sake of one another. The perfect marriage, that's the best marriage. Maybe I said that wrong. No, the perfect marriage, though, looks like Jesus. Because we've got to say, what are we shooting for? If everybody's messed up, sin is everywhere, what are we going for? We want to look like Jesus. Jesus is an example, not just an example, is the, the example of what marriage should look like. Um, marriage that looks like Jesus is selfless and serving. It is submissive and giving, and it is astonishingly honest and vulnerable and transparent. This passage is talking about the ideal marriage, and I point this out only to acknowledge that the Bible does speak about things like divorce. It's not that that's never talked about, but that, that's not in our passage this morning. I just want to acknowledge that. However, if you are in a less than ideal marriage, or you end up there, or you feel like you're there at any moment, you, you don't just get to get out of it. The truth is that all of our marriages are less than ideal. And you know what makes that that way? You. 
me, and the people involved, and sin. People are messy and sinful and selfish and ungodly, and we find all kinds of ways to destroy and undermine what is good for us. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking about the world, sadly. The reason for all of this is our sin. It's our selfishness. What does that do? It needs to turn us to each other. It needs to turn us to God. As we depend on one another and depend on God to be different. Godly marriage sounds great and simple. I mean, the answer is really this. Don't be selfish. We all begin marriage vowing to be unselfish and faithful. And that's oversimplified, so be careful. Like, I'm, Don't push that too far. We think, we think it's going to be simple. We think that, that because of how emotional we feel at the point of marriage, that it's all going to be great. I think it's going to be simple and we just won't be selfish because we're not going to be like that because we, we love them so much. And then we get into it and then, and then we begin to see how sinful and selfish not only other people are, but your spouse is. Well, that's shocking, but also then you. You begin to see how sinful and selfish you are. That's what marriage, that's a big chunk of what marriage is about in a good way. Being able to identify places where you are not being godly. Marriage points those out. By the way, parenthood does the same thing too, but just in a different way. Like you see your failure in these deep relationships. And that's the good part because that's where we know we can depend on God to be different. We can depend on God's strength. We can cry out to Him. And that's what we should be all about. Truth number three. Marriage is about God, not really us. The whole passage that we talk about in Ephesians that we're going to look at in a moment, and especially verse 32, really hits this. This whole passage is first and foremost a simile. Do you know what a simile is? Do you remember high school what a simile is? A simile is a comparison of two things using like or as. Sort of the simplified version. We use similes to express things that through comparison. Often things that are difficult to express. Simile only works though if the two things share something in common. That's what we're highlighting. Paul's key addition to the concept of marriage here in Ephesians has to do with this idea of a mystery. The mystery. So what's the, uh, what is the marriage passage's profound mystery in verse 32 if you look at that? It's the same mystery that Paul has been talking about throughout the entire book of Ephesians. It's the same mystery that we've seen. It's the mystery which declares that because of Jesus, we are united to each other and together united to Jesus, who is our husband and our Lord. God's ultimate concern in marriage is to give us a way of illustrating for the world, and I would say this is very true, to give us a way of tasting for ourselves and illustrating to ourselves the amazing reality of Christ's love for the church. Say it another way, the key message of the passage is, we're getting close to Christmas, Emmanuel. God with us. God wanted to be a part of your life. And He didn't only come to earth. That's shocking and amazing. That's Christmas. Amazing. He died, not only died as payment for your sin, that's shocking and amazing. And that's Easter. But He desires to be in intimate connection with you as one of His people. 
the most intimate of relationships. The entire passage is about how human marriage only um, is about, this whole passage in Ephesians is about human marriage only in that the intimacy of marriage is a pale reflection of Jesus' intimacy with his people, with his church. Our intimacy with Jesus changes how we, as God's people, do intimacy together, beginning in our own marriages, just being close. Maybe you're not married. God will maybe never lead you into marriage, and that's okay. You're not actually left out here. It's interesting. Interestingly, marriage is not the ideal Christian life. Have you ever realized how shocking that really is? Paul speaks uh, to this in 1 Corinthians 7, 6-8, through 8, when he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, to the unmarried and to the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul's saying, I'm single, and that's okay. Most religions, almost every single culture that has ever existed among humanity has, has not valued singleness, valued marriage. But Christianity is different. Only in Christianity is singleness a viable and wonderful possibility like this. This empowers our passage actually even more. If we're married, our marriages should mirror the relationship of the church and Christ. But if we're single, our devotion can be given completely to our relationship with God, which is the ultimate goal of all of God's people. So what do we do with this? If you're married... Let your married life look like Jesus and the church. That's really what we're going to be talking about. This is an amazing illustration of Christian devotion. um, And and our Christian devotion to Jesus even. How we live together. But if you're single, let your singleness shine forth the complete devotion you have to your life and your love of Jesus. To your life with Jesus. To your love of Jesus. Jesus. All of this is tied to our passage. But let's turn directly to our passage, to the verses um, in verse 22 through 24 of chapter 5. This is what it said, remember. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What's happening here? Are we talking about wives or the church? And the answer is both. This is the simile comparison we talked about. We see it most clearly in verse 24. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The comparison piece. So, um, just to sort of take this and apply it, I'm going to give you three applications. For the church, three applications this morning for the church from this passage. First application is church submit to Jesus. But that's harder than we think. Submission is not a very natural thing for us, or doesn't feel very natural. First section is shocking to the modern reader in the cultural West. Western society tries to reject any kind of submission, or at least we pretend to. We proudly think that we are not under anybody's authority. We do what we want. And that's what we say. This is our American freedom, or something like that. That's what we uh, think. But remember that this, the passage last week actually ended, uh, Ephesians five eighteen through 21, um, ended with Paul listing off 
different things that were true. Several actions of God's people who are walking in the light. Walking with Jesus. Who are changed in the way that they do life together. And he said these things, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, okay, for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, okay, uh, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, okay, that's great. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the fa- um, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, we, we're thankful, we're doing these things. And the last was submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, submission in God's people to God's people should be normal for us. God's people who walk in the light choose submission to one another. They choose, in some ways that's about accountability. In some ways that may be about structure. But we are all called to show the world, we as God's people are called to show the world what healthy submission looks like. It's not demeaning. It's not oppressive And our marriages should be the clearest picture of what that looks like. Healthy, committed, faithful picture of submission. Second truth about submission that I thought through was submission is to be chosen. Based on this passage, um, we should choose it. Submission is a, a really challenging thing. The grammar here suggests, though, that it's voluntary. You could suggest that this reads something like, wives should choose to submit to their husband. This simile gives us an example. The wife is to submit to her husband as she submits to the Lord. Our submission to the Lord, by the way, should be pretty extensive. In fact, it should be complete. The part that's the problem is that it's usually not. And that's where sin is. And that's where we need to change. It says a lot about what this type of submission should look like. Now, This is scary. I want you to realize that. Submission like this is scary. Dwell in that concern for just a moment. Who would you be willing to submit yourself to to this degree? Think of all the people out there that you would not like to be submitted to. Think about all those people, especially um, those who are wives or one day will be wives. Think about all the people you do not want to be submitted to like this. And that's okay. You shouldn't marry those people. <laughs> Let's just knock them off the table or the, off the list. Who you marry matters. And in the end, you won't pick a perfect spouse. You will not. But there are lots of things that you can look for in choosing someone you love. Be cautious. It's important. Because it's about God. Notice that, that also on the other side of it, this passage makes people uncomfortable, but there is no call for husbands ever that I know of to demand submission. I don't know anywhere in Scripture that teaches a husband should teach or force his wife to submit. I don't know where that would be. Paul even directly confronts this misconception by likening the husband at the end of, or as the head of the marriage to Jesus. How oppressive and forceful and violent and how is Jesus in this idea. Husband should be like Jesus. Notice next the comments, uh, the, the small, by the way, comments to the wives are followed by a very large comment to the husbands. Beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without, without blemish. Church, the second thing that we need to do is actually not something that we do, but more realize or live in. Be loved. Know that you are loved by Jesus. My most profound realization in studying for this, this passage for this week is that love here is clearly an action. Nothing about love in this passage is actually emotional or a feeling, at least not explicitly. Our culture has a problem. We think of love as simply a feeling or a desire or a want uh, that, we, that we feel towards somebody else. We think that this feeling is what defines love. And if you think of love as a feeling, too much of the Bible is just confusing. Love is more than a feeling. It's a conscious choice to act in a certain way. One theologian talks about how we cannot fall out of love. That actually makes no sense because love is action. We may fall out of like with someone, but our actions, our love, must continue on. God calls us to continue on. As it does, we will grow in these feelings because of the actions that we're doing. Feelings of love often follow undeserved actions of love. Your husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Jesus gave himself for the church to sanctify her, to clean her and make her holy, to cleanse her and make her pure. All this talk of washing and cleansing connects with the imagery of the prophet Ezekiel. Every commentary I looked at references back to Ezekiel chapter 16. Every study Bible, Ezekiel chapter 16. In this passage, in Ezekiel, God is talking about preparations for a marriage to his people, Jerusalem in this case. At least that's how it's defined. In Ezekiel 16.6, God sees his people, Jerusalem, and he says, live. And then he makes them flourish like a plant of the field, and they grow up and they become tall. And then when God passes by again a little later, he sees that his people are old enough for marriage. And then he spreads his garment over this young woman of his people and makes his vow to them and they enter into a marriage covenant. And after declaring his covenant, he washes his bride and he anoints her with oils and he clothes her and dresses her with fancy clothes and jewelry. He gives her good food and she becomes very beautiful in preparation for their wedding day. By the way, if you keep reading in Ezekiel 16, it doesn't keep going well. But... That's the picture. That, that husband coming to a bride and cleansing her and building her up and growing and nurturing her into the most beautiful that she could possibly be. Jesus is doing that same thing for his bride, the church. He's preparing his people for marriage. He's giving himself to grow them and prepare them for an eternity with him. We are amazingly loved. Church, Be loved by Jesus. Know that you are loved by Jesus. And then we have verse 28 through 32. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Church, 
final truth or challenge or application really for the church is to be united to Jesus. In light of our discussion about love a second ago, husbands are called to love their wives like they do their own bodies. Paul is not suggesting that people should love themselves with some kind of an emotional feeling. Do you love your body emotionally? Like just how do you feel about your body? That's not what he's talking about here. What Paul is talking about is, again, love in action, not some affectionate feeling thing. People take care of themselves. Even if they don't do the best job of it, they do take care of their bodies and try to make it feel good. Now, they may choose bad things to do that, but they try. People care for and provide for their bodies so they can continue to live. Your will to live is actually uh, one of the more stronger drives in your body, in your life. Like this, or better than any person could ever do this, Jesus cares for his church. Jesus provides what is needed to his people. What does it mean to love someone like your own bodies or your own flesh? Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 31 of Ephesians. And in this verse, God's plan is that a man should leave the most primary intimate relationship of his life for an even more intimate one. A child leaves his parents to become so intimate with another human being that it can be called one flesh, one body, one person. It's important. This one fleshness is a unity, a giving up of oneself individually for a new self with a spouse. I hope you think you can see how amazing this concept is. That we could be so close as to be united with another individual and to complement them to become more whole together than we ever could be separate. It's an amazing thing. But just like Paul says in our passage, that's not the most amazing thing ever. Marriage is not the most amazing thing ever. The most amazing thing is that this unity can be found, that can be found in godly marriage is only a pale reflection of the unity that Jesus is preparing us for with him. Just as the first Adam joined his wife and they became one flesh, so also the last Adam, Jesus, is joined to his bride so that they can become one with him. I don't even know what all that means. That that goes so deep and is so mind-blowing that there's just no way to express it. Jesus didn't just come. He didn't just die for us. He desires to be united with us, the church and Jesus, together in ultimate unity. God and man dwelling together. That's the mystery. That's the amazing reality of what God is doing in Jesus. Uniting us in Him. With Him. Paul ends with verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 33 leads us into our application. If we, as we've said, a Christian marriage reproduces in miniature the beauty shared between the bridegroom, Jesus, and the bride, the church, and God created human marriage so that his people would have a category for understanding the relationship between Christ and his church, then how's it going for you if you're married? Personally, is your marriage displaying this reality of Jesus and his bride? Is that what it looks like? For the wives here this morning, godly marriage looks like a church completely submitted to Jesus who sacrificed himself as her Savior. Wives, does your marriage 
display devotion and submission? Are you submitted to your husband like you are to Jesus? I'm only saying what's there. How does it look? Husbands, you don't get off at all. You get twice as many words. Um, For the husband, not from me, from Paul. Twice as many words from Paul. I'm going to be gentle. For husbands... (laughs) Godly marriage looks like Jesus who loves the church, sacrifices himself for her with purpose to sanctify her into holiness, purity, provides everything she needs. Husbands, does your marriage display the actions of loving devotion that provide for your wife and seek her growth in development and purity and holiness? Are you committed to your wife like Jesus is committed to his church? Are you a husband like Jesus? Paul's point is not that Jesus and the church look like human marriage, but it is in fact the other way around. However, even in this, there's still something to be said to the church too. Submit to Jesus, church. Trust in his ways. Study his word. Follow as he directs. That's what we should be about. God gave us marriage and then he gave us the Bible to direct us. We have the Bible to help us even in marriage to know how we should live together. This passage, by the way, is not the only one. There are many passages that deal with some of these things or even how love should look. What is love? How does that work? What does it function like? God gave us the Bible to help us to know how to live and how to love and how to serve in all areas of his kingdom, including marriage. So, submit to Jesus. Second, church be loved by Jesus. As we said, trust in what he has done for you on the cross. If you've never done that, then we need to talk. Uh, but but we need to be, you need to begin in seeing your sinfulness before God. We need to turn from our commitment to do whatever we think is best and commit to follow him with our whole lives. Jesus died to pay the penalty for your rebellion against God. But God also gave us tools to help us in the journey. Tools like the Bible, and importantly, other believers who gather together in the church. If you have questions about what Jesus did or about joining the church, please, please talk with somebody after the service. Commit to Him. Follow Him. Talk with us. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus and a member of the church, a church, the church, a church, I don't know. And then, here's what you should do. Live in that love. Trust in what Jesus has done, but then trust in what he's not just done way back there on the cross, but what he's currently doing in your life among God's people. He loves you. And that love is an active thing. Notice Jesus, the picture of Jesus cleansing his bride is an active thing. That's what Jesus is doing. Be encouraged. Jesus loves you. And he is cleansing you. Lean into that. Enjoy that. Finally, church, be united to Jesus. The goal is to become like Jesus. We're becoming like Him. Our expressions of that are different, but He is growing us together into His image. More and more, we must love what He loves. More and more, we must do what He does or would do. We must go where He goes. Submit our lives as He would do it. That's the challenge to you and me today. Let me pray for us as we think through these things. God, on this Thanksgiving weekend, we are thankful for you. We are amazed by you. Thank you Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you are doing in our lives and changing us and providing for us. Thank you that you desire us. God, we, we can't even understand. 
Thank you for showing us what a good spouse is like. May our lives and our marriages be a picture of loving you and being loved by you. So that others would see, not us, not even our marriages and how wonderful they can be, but but you. And that they would love you along with us. God, we need your strength for this. Help us to be truly yours. Truly yours in our families. Truly yours among our friends. Truly yours anywhere we go in life, in our work, what we do for leisure, but even poignantly today in our marriages. God, may we look like you. God, we need your strength to do it. Help us to be yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.